Hey everyone. First off, we at the Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are producing this podcast, and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present, and emerging. We would also like to acknowledge the Mbantua people, who are the traditional custodians of the Adranta country, where our guest recorded this episode, and pay respect to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to all the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples that are listening to this podcast. Hello and welcome to the Familiar Strange. I am Claire, your Familiar Stranger for today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Yasmin Mushabash. Yasmin is a senior lecturer at the School of Archaeology and Anthropology at the Australian National University. Her fieldwork is based in Central Australia and primarily centered on the Yundumu, an Aboriginal community about three hours northwest of Alice Springs. Over the years, her research has branched out in an impressive variety of directions, including social relations and personhood of the Walpuri people, the anthropology of sleep and night, the anthropology of emotions, embodiment, boredom studies, death and grieving, and so on. Today. We are talking about Yasmin's research on monster anthropology, which has blossomed into an ongoing interdisciplinary and comparative project that brings together anthropology and monster studies. In this episode, we explore the different ways in which the Aboriginal people live with the monsters that haunt them. In particular, in instances of social change and transformation, we first delve into the elementary instability of the term monster, such as how the monstrous bodies rupture classification, transgressing the otherwise clear-cut boundaries between taxonomies, and how monsters are contingent on the humans they haunt, combining the temporal and spatial perspectives. Then, Yasmin compares and contrasts monster studies versus monster anthropology. Before drawing on her fieldwork to investigate how one particular monster that cannot be named morphs and changes alongside the colonial settler state that has been inflicting trauma onto the Aboriginal peoples, we then explore how a more well-known monster, the Pankalang, has adapted to the broader processes of climate change and colonialism, and how the Aboriginal people haunted by it perceive such a transformation. We finally discuss the appropriation of Aboriginal monsters, the clash between different ontologies in fieldwork, and how pandemics and apocalypses may impact on monsters in the Aboriginal country. Before we dive into today's interview, did you know that we have a Facebook chat group? Join us on the Familiar Strange chat on Facebook and provide some valuable insights into today's interview. And also. You might have seen on social media recently that we were awarded an Engaged Anthropology grant by the Australian Anthropological Association to create some transcripts of our episodes, 
and we want your input. We are going to be polling our audience over the next couple of weeks to find your favorite episodes or the ones that you would most want to see transcriptions of. So keep an eye out on our social media. And here it is, my interview with Dr. Yasmin Mushabash. Hi, Yasmin. Thank you so much for joining us today. So happy to have you here. So can you tell us what kind of monsters fall into the umbrella term of monster anthropology? <laughs> what characteristics do they share in common? Excellent question. And it's really easy to answer when it comes to like the bulk of them. But then as soon as you get to the boundaries of each way of defining it, it gets really fuzzy and it's kind of up to you whether you include them or not. But so in, in Garen, my first book, we tried to define as much as we could what we mean by monster. And so one way in which we define it is through the body of the monster. So we say that the monstrous body needs to kind of cross categories that otherwise aren't crossed. So, you know, each society, like each culture has different ways of classifying and categorizing. And so things belong into categories and things that straddle or cross categories, like one precondition we say for something monstrous. So categories that are often straddled or crossed by monsters are, for example, between human and animal. So like, you know, you have those classic ones where you have like a horse's body and a man's upper body or a human most of the time, but then you're a werewolf at other times. So you kind of morph in and out of human and animal or like one of the really, really big categories that get crossed is between dead and alive. So where you get different forms of undead. So you get beings that, you know, are neither dead nor alive or that are both dead and alive. So like vampires, zombies, mm. and so on, ghosts. And yeah, so depending on where the boundaries for categories are, that then is where monstrous bodies kind of arise. And that kind of links us to the second way in which we define monsters, which is that they're totally contingent on the humans that they haunt. So they have to make sense within or like against a particular ontology for them to even be monsters. Like if they're not crossing any categories, like if, if the categories are so that they're not being crossed, then that being is not a monster, whereas it would be a monster in a different context. And then that brings us to the next one, which is that the monsters always temporally contingent as well so just as humans who are haunted by monsters experience historical change so do the monsters and some monsters kind of perpetuate that or exploit that other monsters become extinct and so on and so on so monsters are kind of in time very similarly to the way in which the humans that they're haunt are in time and so we kind of try and get from emplacement the temporality of monsters the body of monsters so we kind of try and get at it from different perspectives to get towards a pretty broad and solid definition of what a monster is there'll always be exceptions there'll always be boundary cases where you go well i don't know maybe it is maybe it isn't but what we tried very hard was to stay away 
from good and evil, which, you know, is, is one very culturally specific way of looking at things anyways. It really cross-cuts a lot of the ways that, say, take Walpree people, for example, who I work with, who are one of the people whose language actually has a generic term for monster. Like, not all languages do have a generic term for monsters. And mm. Walpree does have a generic term, cuckoo. And it just means all kinds of beings that are different. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. It doesn't matter. What matters is that all of them are cuckoo. So that's also what we took on board, that not all monsters need to terrify, not all monsters need to scare and lurk. And if you kind of take those really broad definitions, then you can include ghosts and spirits and things that might haunt you in a really spooky, potentially evil way, but that might also protect you and look after you. I want to come back to the third point you just mentioned about monster and change. So it's actually a running thread throughout your most recent book? Yeah, took that as a definition in the first book and then had so much resonance with that that the entire second book is just about monsters and change and how fabulous monsters are to think through change and try and understand change in new and different facets and aspects. Can you elaborate how have the monsters in your field work yeah. changed over time? Yeah. I think yeah. before I get to my field work, which I love talking about, I should talk about the difference between monster studies and monster anthropology because we get a lot of the theory uh, that we draw on comes from monster studies, but you always have to remember that monster studies deals with mostly fictional monsters. So this is like, you know, literature studies, media studies, history, geography, all sorts of things. And they often deal with fictional monsters, whereas we deal with people's experiences of monsters. So that's a really big difference and so a lot of the fictional monster theory actually says and again that this kind of means that you have a definition of the monster as scary or evil only but a lot of the kind of monster studies definition looks at how monsters embody what's the key fears that express an era so you have people look at what kind of monsters play the main roles in like in movies you know you can kind of go from say vampires to zombies to this to that and and how each of them kind of encapsulate different kinds of fears or like you can do the same thing just looking at zombies how different zombies across time encapsulate different fears from the Vietnam War, to contagion, to refugees, to viruses, to, you know, before that HIV. Depending on how the zombie is portrayed, it kind of hitches the ride with what is the most common fear. And we absolutely agree, monsters do that, 100%. But we also say they do so much more. They're not just metaphors. Like, it's not metaphors that you're engaging with when you're on country. It's like it's actual monsters. Like, you know, you kind of avoid going to a specific place or you sing out in particular ways or you move camp, not because of metaphors, but because of monsters. The feelings that monsters engender are very different feelings to the feelings that a metaphor would engender. But monsters aren't only related to fears. Monsters are more than that. So we kind of try and broaden that out. 
and they can be seen as like independent agents. Yeah, independent agents that are completely embedded in time and space and their relations with humans and other other than humans as well. So to talk about my own field work, basically any any monster I've looked at, you just notice how the monsters themselves express something about the last hundred years or so, which is like basically the story of invasion for Walbury people. Contact isn't much longer than that. And so you have monsters that stand for really clear things related to invasion and colonialism and other monsters that stand for, I can't say the name of them because I'm, <laughs> I'm too close, but um, so one monster, for example, that I've written a lot about actually comes to embody the opposite side, but um, a very related way of really the settler colonial aspect of non-Indigenous people. So, you know, whereas governments, officials and bureaucrats, managers and so on, drive around the desert in white Toyotas, that particular monster drives around the desert in black Toyotas. They are like the worst of non-Indigenous Australia, but they're also monsters. And what's really striking there is that people then go like, you know, it's those monsters who kill us. It's the incredible mortality rate is linked to those monsters, but the monsters kill Indigenous people. The monsters don't kill non-Indigenous people. The monsters actually mirror, work with and emulate non-Indigenous people. So it's like it's like Walfrey monsters gone rogue and becoming colonizers and colonizing Walfrey people in the same way that they're being colonized by the settler colonial state. Fascinating. It's almost as if the monsters are like an inversion or like a mirror image of the colonial history yeah. and present. Yeah, very much so. It's still yeah. ongoing. Yeah. Yeah. So that monster also underwent certain changes over time. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that? It's so interesting because it, it did so many, like basically what happened there is that you had different things merge at different times and in different ways. So for starters, there's like a merging of two different types of monsters where one monster is distinctly of the dreaming and has songs and places and names in the dreaming and mm. the other monster is quite different in that it's more human-like it's more like revenge killers who can be fully human or humans with lots of sorcery skills or humans with more than human like supernatural skills some of the revenge killers are just walk at night, find their victim and kill it. And others might use sorcery, but others again might, you know, make themselves invisible or move from A to B really fast. So they, they're kind of more than human, but more human than the other monster. Anyway, so those two monsters, the, the one that comes right out of the dreaming and the one that's a more human-y revenge killer, they emerged pretty much around the time that, that I first began doing research, as far as I can tell, um, because 
people used to distinguish between them much more and then over time they used the names for the two monsters interchangeably and it was never quite clear whether it was one or the other and so you can kind of see how the two became one and then that one then ended up becoming the one that takes on or like embodies the dark side of the colonizer and so one way in which I looked at that was to look at um, Nina Auerbach who is a literary scholar and she wrote a book called Our Vampires Ourselves where she said that vampires more than any other uh, monster are really good at kind of embodying whatever it is that ails people and like or that people are afraid of at any one time so basically what what she said is vampires more than any other monster are able to mirror back to humans what it is that at any particular point in time is what plagues them and she said that the reason that vampires are so very good at it is that vampires are so very similar to humans and so I was kind of extending that and saying that like I think she's totally right vampires are incredibly good at doing all these things because they're so human-like but we can extend that to just go that human-like monsters generally are so very good at that and then that's what I applied to literally this merging process of the monstrous monster and the more human-like monster becoming one human-like monster and that human-like monster really standing so unsubtly for like becoming responsible very unsubtly for things that directly relate to colonization like mortality rates and, and fears that relate to colonization and so yeah that kind of humanization of the monster and monsterization of the human like those double process makes that monster particularly hard to get rid of because it is just so like it so expertly adapts to whatever it is that really makes life horrible um so we have that as well as the um looking after country and and looking after people imply spirits that are still there but in different ways to before you know because <laughs> there's so many monsters you can keep looking and find more and more examples of them and it's very hard to kind of look at any monster right now like in the 21st mm-hmm. century any monster in the Tanamite desert and and see it detached from you know those huge processes not just of colonialism but of extinction and climate change and like all those things that impact life in the desert. Could you please give us an example of one such monster in your field work? that has changed with and also adapted to climate change in the Tanami Desert. That's the Pankalang, which is, it's like a Walpri version of um, Big Man or Yeti or Sasquatch. Like it's a giant, hairy, cannibal, bigger and wilder than humans. 
just really wild, oversexed, uncivilized, out there, hairy thing. That's how it's presented in like all the myths and stories and um, dreaming kind of stories that talk about it. It's a pretty much pan-Australian monster. So it has different names in different places across Australia, but there's slight variations in what it does and what it looks like and stuff. But I did my research, Pangalang or Harry's had become this thing of, they're the only monster really that I know that had become a little bit like storybook monsters or just so monsters because they hadn't been cited in so long and because there's a lot of school books about them so people still talked about them and read about them and especially at school but just in books and not so much in other ways and, and especially not through encounters and so when in 2013 a family of Harry's was cited outside of Yunnamu there was a lot of discussion about where they'd been, what happened, why they were coming back. And, you know, people were terrified, but people were excited and people were trying to find them. But people were also very scared of them because they'd hunt and eat children. And and so a lot of the conversations were about where had they been? Why were they coming back now? What did it mean that they came back now? And interestingly, a lot of the stories say, so like, there's two ways in which people kind of reflected about that. One way was in terms of it was the return of the Pankalung that even suggested to that person that she had in the meantime started to accept them as stories rather than as real. And that that was never clear to her until the moment that they came back because like all the other monsters are real and they're out there and you re- have moved through the world with awareness of where they're at and you move carefully somewhere and thankfully somewhere else because there's monsters there whereas because she hadn't encountered them they had become just so stories to her and that only became clear to her when they came back and then she went like what does it actually mean that they had become just so stories to me and what does it mean that I now know that they're more than that and it just really revealed a, a whole big ontological crunch of is the dreaming real yes it is and uh, did I actually truly allow parts of the dreaming to slip into just so story yes I did that was one complex of things that she was talking about and then the other one of course was where had they been why did they go and the way she made sense of that I found terribly interesting because she said well maybe they've just been extinct and now they come back and um, and of course to me hearing someone say ah they were just extinct and now they're back it sounds really peculiar and that then made me look at extinction and and extinction in the Tanami which is a huge huge big issue like you know central australia has the highest extinction of mammals and mm. at the moment buffer grass is sweeping through and getting rid of all the grasses and they get it then leads to insect and smaller reptile loss and um, also it burns hotter which leads to larger tree loss and so on so, so it's, it's dramatic extinction is really dramatic in the desert but the desert also is where most of the rehabilitation takes place. So, you know, a lot of Warpre country is 
nature reserves where animals like the mala or the what's that little cute one um building the building you know they they all get put into huge like it's not right to call them enclosures because you know half as big as belgium or whatever um but you know there's indigenous rangers there shooting cats and um enemies and then kind of get rewilded there and then once their populations are really large enough they get taken back to their country and so you have a lot of animals that's being brought to the desert in order to refornate and then you have other experiences with like yundami for example is on uh, possum dreaming but possums are mostly extinct in central australia there's like three little pockets left in central australia where possums mm. are said to still exist, but I don't know any wallpaper person who's seen one over 50 years in the desert. But, you know, you go to Canberra or Melbourne or Sydney and possums are just walking around everywhere. Like they're just literally everywhere. Mm. And so it was a little bit the same with the punkalung because they came from the east and walked past Yundamu to the west. So they came from where non-Indigenous people are. They came from like direction of Alice Springs and Canberra and Sydney and Melbourne. So it's kind of like they've been, like the possums left and the pangalung left. And and we know that the possums are down there. And so here's the pangalung coming back from that direction. And it's walking back into the Tanami Desert, which is the homeland not, of, not just of Warpree people, but of that pangalung. And so it's like, yeah, it's like it had, it had been where the main centers of the settler colonial state are and, and now it's coming home and it's, it's changed because now the pangalung wasn't a big cannibal hairy male it was a family it was a mum a dad and a kid so the pangalung also got colonized and turned into that other form of family that the settler colonial state at the moment tries to turn Walpole people into. Now, the other thing that's really interesting is that, so Yundamu is on the southeastern corner of the Tanami Desert, and the Tanami Desert is the traditional homeland of Walpole people. And another Walpole community, larger Manu, is like straight across the desert of like a 550 k's on the other side of the desert in the northwest. And they have a really different relationship and experience of Pankalung up there. So Pankalung up there didn't disappear. They have a constant presence. But Pankalung up there also became more white, if you want to call it that, because Pankalung up there now are being spotted having picnics and, you know, doing things that white fellas do. There's like some kind of parallel between the ways in which Walpree people are being colonized and and the pressures of conforming with things like nuclear families and leisure and stuff and the way that seems to be happening to the Pankalung as well, which is really interesting. I remember having read about the Pankalung being appropriated into not only children's books, but also like merchandises to the point that they are more fictional than than real, which is kind of sad. Appropriation of monsters is like, you know, especially in in settler colonial states is something really quite amazing where you go, you know, the same would have happened to the Sasquatch and the Yeti and um, you kind of get like some indigenous local monster 
and it just becomes the monster of the colonizer and that's also something that as you said is, has been happening to the Pankalang as well with there being things such as the Pankalang furniture like you know high very expensive super awesome but terribly expensive designer arty furniture that that's based on broadly broadly based on the Pankalang not the Walpri one the Aranda one the Banyip is probably the monster in Australia that that is just the most in your face appropriation because the Banyip would be the monster I would think that's pretty much like if you asked any mainstream Australian to name an Australian indigenous monster they would go like the Banyip it's the one that everyone knows what happened to the Banyip is that it was this really localized so Banyip used to be along the Murray River and um, Ashrees around the Murray River uh, where it goes into like but also up further into Victoria New South Wales and so the Banyip had local names and it had so there was local versions of Banyips that were called something entirely different in different languages and they all had their own stories and they all had their own abodes and their own places and habits and things and it was all collated into one generic bunyip, so that like, any water dwelling thing along the Murray now is a bunyip. But then it also was taken up in art, in, in literature, in history, in stamps, in toys. And so you can get like little squishy bunyip toys and there's, you know, really cute stamps of bunyips. And so something that was actually a really potent river dwelling monster that you know played really like multiple roles in country becomes something cute that colonizers put on stamps and and yeah that's quite something and that yeah like if you go around the world there's like so many examples of appropriation of monsters just wondering if you have ever had an encounter in the field where you have you know called in between different ontologies and you have to solve the conflicts or the tensions brought about by straddling both the inic and attic mm. um, understandings excellent question let me think about that i think it's actually a question you should interview joe thurman about <laughs> um, because did you read her paper on the same monster, the name of which we can't say? Because yeah. um, she's got this really fabulous story of um, so Nirpi, where she was doing research, the community have got assaulted for nine nights by that particular monster. Like it was actually one girl in particular that got assaulted, and so everyone was like camping around that girl and looking after that girl and. The senior people were like standing closer towards the desert and and yelling and trying to ward off the monster and stuff and so she kind of talks about what goes on at night and then she talks about what goes on during the day which is when the monster isn't haunting so badly and during the day like the day so the nine to five of the day of course in, in settlements is very much characterized by the nine to five of work and organizations and meetings and non-indigenous people coming into the settlement and then after five o'clock they either leave for Alice Springs or they 
leave to kind of live to their lives in their houses which are on the other side of the sand dunes so it's kind of like you know at night it's like the Walbury people in Nyerpi dealing with those monsters and then during the day it's Walbury people in Nyerpi dealing with non-indigenous people and then so there's this girl who, who's being attacked by these monsters who is like it's it's a struggle to the death it's like it's like it's she's serious like you know they're trying to kill her and everybody else is trying to protect her and that is not something that you ask non-indigenous people for help with because of course they won't help you with it and then she has this really short brief nod towards one occasion where i think somebody else in that same camp where everyone's protecting that girl is having a medical emergency and of the um, non-indigenous nurse coming in and dealing with the medical emergency with that person who's not being attacked by a monster but who's got something and then kind of you know shaking her head at the craziness of the indigenous people and like leaving and administering medical care to that particular person and thinking everybody else is quite mad while everybody else is administering care to that other person that you know doesn't get recognized as as sick and needing care and and so there's like all these different levels there of seeing and not seeing what's what and then what needs care and I always thought that was a fabulous example of it all being layered on top of each other. I was actually thinking about ever since the pandemic hit throughout last year it is the most drastic social changes that I have ever witnessed mm. yeah. in my life. Yeah. Um, just wondering if there is any, I guess, upheavals or huge changes in the Aboriginal people's encounter with monsters that might be linked back to COVID. Not in the desert so much, I would say, but I would answer that question or like, you know, I would kind of spin off that particular link you made between COVID and huge changes in a different way, which is there's a scholar, Larry Gross, who's a Native American scholar, and he's coined the phrase post-apocalyptic stress syndrome, and he uses post-apocalyptic stress syndrome to talk about the changes that, or like the response to the changes that colonization has wrought on indigenous people. And so he compares colonization to the apocalypse. And there's a lot of Native American um, research that does that, that just goes colonization is like the apocalypse and so uh, once you come, if you survive the apocalypse, like <laughs> these are the horrible, horrible things that happen um, and cause ongoing trauma. And that's something I, I think is spot on. The thing that I would then say to link it to your point is that the, the plural of apocalypse comes in different forms and so I think like you know the zombie apocalypse is different from um, colonialism as apocalypse is different from um, the pandemic as apocalypse and I do I do absolutely agree one could call the pandemic apocalypse in that it changed the world like you know the world post pandemic is not at all the same as the world pre pandemic but I would say in, if you were to make a kind of scale of apocalypses, then the pandemic wouldn't be the worst kind of apocalypse that we can imagine. It's bad, but things are yeah. way worse if you get colonized. <laughs> like in the desert, 
that's how the pandemic would register. It's another thing. It's not the big thing. And so I really can't tell whether, I honestly don't know whether, I mean, time will tell, but at this point, I don't think there's anything, like it's, it's not even having enough repercussions to cause much hubbub in the, in the monster world because everything else is so bad anyway. So it's like, it's one more bad thing. Whereas I would expect the kind of monstrous reaction to be much larger or much more noticeable in, in non-Indigenous context as it comes to the pandemic. Thank you so much, Yasmin, for joining us in oh, the podcast today. Pleasure. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us make the show better. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash thefamiliarstrange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. The most recent blog post is from our very own Carolyn West, where she explores faith in space through a reflection of attending the first Hillsong Church service after the purchase of the Festival Hall in Melbourne. What use would the church have for a musical space? Head over to our website and read this thought-provoking piece to find out. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at tfstweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Deborah, with special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Motoro. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. Until next time. Keep talking strange.